the My Comic Shop History Patreon page continues to grow, my new Patreon-exclusive podcast, My Super Fan History, takes to the skies on Sunday, September 9th, with an examination of the death of Superman in comics and animation, available at the $1 per month reward tier. Remember, your pledge not only gets you extra content, but it also enables me to continue to create this show. Thank you to everyone who has already pledged, and a big welcome to our newest VIP patrons, Brendan Howard, Josh Marowitz, and Tom O'Sullivan. This episode is brought to you in part by a family of film festivals. The Brightside Tavern Film Festival in Jersey City in March, the Point Lookout Film Festival on Long Island in April, and the Hang On To Your Shorts Film Festival in Asbury Park in May. Find them all on Film Freeway, Without a Box, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're looking to submit a film, use the Film Freeway discount code SJRBRIGHT2019 for Brightside Tavern and SJR. H-O-T-Y-S 2019 for Hang On To Your Shorts. In the meantime, visit iTunes or a shareduniverse.com to tune into the official Hang On To Your Shorts podcast. Welcome to Beyond My Comic Shop. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. This is part three of our four-part Buying Books with Ben miniseries. I am joined once again by Zap Comics co-owner Ben Lichtenstein. Ben, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. The penultimate installment of our series here. The penultimate, okay, I, I guess you could say that. Yeah, so in the first two parts, we talked about your history as a collector and, and then a buyer. And we also talked about some of your strategies, some of the things that you go through as you're, as you're buying these collections. And for parts three and four, I really would love to get into some of the specific collections and deals you've done. And also talk about the travel component of this, because I think that's really interesting too. I got to tell you though, after we recorded... Last time, I spent some time here at your store at Zap uh, going through the sets that you guys put together. Oh, very cool. I love the sets, and I actually picked right. up the John Byrne Man of Steel miniseries. Oh, yeah. That was one of my favorite series. That was when I got back into comics after a little bit of a hiatus. I think I mentioned I had gone, I had gotten off of comics a while, and then I got back into it at camp. And about the time I got back into it in the early 80s, that was when he that series came out, and I, I thought it was excellent. Yeah, so there have obviously been numerous tellings of Superman's origin. My favorite, personally, is Birthright, the Mark Wade series. Sure, I know that, sure. But I am a fan of Man of Steel as well. I haven't owned the series in either single issues or trade in years. I think I had the trade a while back, and I, I got rid of it at some point. Mm -hmm. But I saw it here. Ten bucks. What a steal. Why not, right? You know, it sets sets are a great way to move a lot of stuff, and I the thing I love the most about the sets not just that I'm getting rid of uh, turning over inventory that's great, right? But the thing is, you know, 99% of the people buying them are just readers, so it keeps them in the hobby. They're able to read a whole giant chunk of stories, usually really affordably. A lot a lot of times it's under a dollar a book, sometimes a dollar a book, unless it's a really good mini series. There's some good mini series out there like Batman Dark Victory, which you know, are quite collectible. But the, the, the sets have been, it's not just us, a lot of dealers are using the same method to move merchandise. And I really love to see when it's getting in the hands of readers and not just guys that are studying the, uh, the speculator websites and just want to flip comics. You know, and they're, they have their place in the market, but I like seeing people reading comics because I believe it keeps them in the hobby. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I love them so much. They're, and the fact that it's, it's a complete run and oftentimes... Maybe not so much in the case of Man of Steel, although I actually don't know offhand if that uh, trade is currently in print. 
Uh, but there are things that I've seen here that either maybe it's never been collected or the trades were put out, but they're not in print any longer. So, you know, it could be a way to get your hands on something that you might not have the opportunity to even read otherwise. That is definitely true. There's a lot of trades that go out of print for varying reasons. Sometimes they're just, you know, they're dead sellers and they're not worth it. And so sometimes they go out of print for just... I remember there's times that Marvel and... Well, Marvel is more guilty of this, but Marvel and DC would be out of really you know, uh, evergreen perennial sellers. I couldn't understand it. But the nice thing with the sets is it's usually much cheaper than a trade. Even if you get it a trade on Amazon, it's cheaper and you're getting a big chunk of reading and you're not missing anything. And uh, it's just a win-win for everyone. The only thing is people don't have the thrill of the hunt in tracking down individual issues. You've done all the work for them. Well, you know, it's funny. There is that. Uh, it's funny you said that. I was going to kind of mention that. It, it does take away some of the thrill of the hunt filling in that having your crumpled a piece of paper with those uh, gaps in your back issues. But like I said, most of them are readers, which is I really want as many readers as possible because readers are going to, A, it's a healthier market when there's this people really love the market and not just flipping them for investment. And B, um, I want to sell to everyone. I want to sell to readers as well as the guys that are putting together a collection. Yeah. And just for listeners, uh, so they know exactly what we're talking about. I know we mentioned a couple of miniseries that you have as sets, but there are larger sets in there as well. Like I think the last time I was here, I saw Outsiders, the entire 60-issue series uh, by Judd Winnick that came out a few years back. That was yes. in there. Uh, the DC Spectre series with Hal Jordan, the, all 40 issues are in there. I see those right now. Uh, yes. So, they, I mean, like really huge, like big chunks. Yes. Yeah, something we've been doing more and more is exactly what you said with those um, I used to be kind of a stickler. I wanted the complete set. So like that Outsiders, what was that, 30? Is that 36? I forget. It doesn't matter. Sometimes I'd want only the full set. But now what we're doing is we're doing those big sets, like you said. But now we're going further. Let's say we have a big run of Green Arrow. That w That's 1 to 137. But we don't have everyone. But we have 1 to 60 or 1 to 80. And we'll put those together. Price them really cheap because that's not a great back issue seller. But there's some great stories there. So we price them you know, usually under a dollar book, and they do great, and it, it makes everyone happy. So I did have a follow-up question uh, from our last conversation. I spoke uh, not too long ago with our mutual friend, New Jersey comic shop clerk, Sean Hendricks. Oh, and <laughs> my buddy. <laughs> <laughs> and he mentioned to me Patrick Milligan of Pegasus Comics. Oh, yeah. And according to Sean, Pat was sort of an, an Obi-Wan to you is that is that accurate is that fair to say well my my history with pat milligan um when i was collecting when i got back into it heavily early 80s um i was going to the fred greenberg local comic shows and pat was um a really well-respected dealer had a really good grasp of grading and he tended to have higher grade stuff and really knew what he was doing um, and really knew a lot about comics so i definitely uh, bought a lot of stuff from him I don't have too many now. I think, um, you know, when I started the stores, I purged most of my collection. I still, you know, I, I think we talked about that. I kept a few long boxes. So I probably still have a few books that I bought from Pat Milligan in the 80s. But anyway, yeah, Pat was definitely an influence in the sense that he had very good knowledge and a great eye for condition. And Pat also has a great collection. I've never seen it, but I've, from what I've talked to him about, he has a great collection. And the nice thing is now I do the local Clifton comic show, and Pat is my neighbor there, and we chat you know, at every show. I see him at every show. We talk comics. So Pat's a great guy. 
Was it was it sort of active instruction that he was giving you, or was more just you kind of learned by observing him? No, we never actually had any active. I never. I, I was pretty shy um, back then. I don't think I ever. I, I learned mostly from um, observing. Um, I never. I don't think I said too many words to him actually in the 80s besides oh hey how much is that Thor 117 or you know that journey 117 and so he never actually you know took me in his wing in that way but I definitely learned a lot just by observing and buying from him are there any you know like young buyers out there now who might look to you as an Obi-Wan like do you find yourself doing any mentoring either directly or, or indirectly well I'm always very willing to help new stores um so as long as I think we Again, I I for, you know I forget what we talked about this already. As long as the store is not right in my same town, like it right in Wayne, where it's going to be a direct competitor, and we're just going to cannibalize each other, as long as he's you know at least maybe seven or eight miles away, I've always been very willing to talk to a new store, give them a lot, and you know no, I don't want anything returned, just some friendly advice because it's fun to talk about the business. It's kind of fun to teach someone. So, like, for example, um, there's a store in Montclair. He was one of my customers, Jeff Beck at Eastside Mags. Sure. Uh, very nice guy. And Jeff bought for me from the age of probably 12 or so. And, you know, he wanted to open a store. So I, I enjoyed giving him, you know, some what I think was some sage advice just from my years of experience. So there's been uh, one, two, three, four. There's been at least four of my former customers that have opened stores that I know of. And I'm sure there's more. I just can't think of them. So I definitely enjoy, you know, telling telling them the ropes. I usually caution them not to do it um, because it, it can be so difficult. And, you know, occasionally we have people come in the store that say, you know, this is great. I'm going to open a comic store. And, and I try and give them some uh, words of advice, usually not to do it, to tell you the truth. Usually that it, it, it looks a lot easier than it is. Pe- I think a lot of people have a misconception that we just hang out here and, like, read comics and, like, have... Um, you know, just like have fun all day, and it's really not, you know, it's fun, but it's work, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's very much a misconception, uh, especially coming to a store. You, you Again, you see the, the fun side of it, but you don't always know what goes on behind the scenes. Right. So uh, Odo at Alternate Realities, similarly, he would he would try to dissuade people from opening their own store. Mm-hmm. I suspect you do it in a far more gentle way uh, <laughs> than he used to. Well, yeah, knowing him and knowing myself, yeah, I, I'm pretty... Um, I don't think I would, I have the same style as he does. I, I just, I really just tell him the truth. I give him a, like, like I remember when Jeff was opening his, I told him about like probably like between five and 10, just really basic things to be really careful of that I, that had burned me over the years, whether it's buying too many toys or whether it's, you know, going after variants too much. And, um, you know, I think, I think he's doing fine. You know, I see Jeff at the comic shows and, um, we always say hi. I think I, I I hope he's doing fine. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I bring that up, and and specifically this question of like training the next generation of of back issue buyers. Obviously, you're still a young man, spry. You're out there. You're doing mm. all these things. I think you, you got de- decades of buying still to come. But I just wonder if if you've given any thought to sort of the the zap legacy of buying comics. Is that anything that's kind of come into your head yet? Like I need to set something up so that when I'm no longer active doing this, like that will carry on, or is that not really well, in the in the mindset yet? I'm I'm probably not not doing a, a good job of of setting that up. What I will say is, I think certain people just just naturally gravitate towards it and those are the ones that can learn from watching me for example my employee patrick 
has really learned a lot. He's in charge of buying our Pokemon and our Yu-Gi-Oh uh, and our Funko Pops. And he knows exactly how I want to do the buying. And he's done a great job. And, and that hasn't been, we didn't sit down and have like a series of, you know, meetings. Okay, you're going to, this is how you do it. It's been purely osmosis. And then I always talk to him, okay, well, the reason that we're paying this for this collection is these are going to sit. These are going to move quick. These, this is a good customer. This person really needs the money. Sometimes we that factors in, you know, within reason because we're running a business. But if someone's really in a pinch, we're going to pay them a little more. And if someone's been supporting us all these years, there definitely goes to the top. You know, they're going to get the top range of our, of our offering price. Um, and I explained to him about store credit. We don't do a lot of store credit, but it, I like doing store credit. You know, it helps everyone. They get a, a higher price. Helps me. Right, yeah, you can offer more in store credit than you could in cash. Generally. Always, yeah. So, um, as, and, and then Corey's learned quite a bit about, you know, Corey can buy plenty of collections on his own, you know, up, up to a certain, you know, age range. Once we get more into the vintage stuff, you know, um, that's that's my forte. But Corey's learned from me over the years. And again, it wasn't just one specific, like, um, lesson. It just, like, watching me and say, okay, th- this is why I paid this. These are brittle. These aren't brittle. These have great eye appeal, you know. Right. But yeah, I just, just, you know, follow up on that. I mean, is that something that, that you've thought about? Like, I want, I want the Zap buying legacy to be something that goes beyond me, beyond this generation? You know what? Um, I really, I haven't get given it a lot of thought because things are changing so fast. I really like the fact that uh, I've been doing this 25 years, and most people, you know, you can't make everyone happy. But in general, most of my customers, I, I, I run into my customers everywhere I go on vacation. You know, when I leave the country, I finally escape it. But everywhere I go, literally, like, around the country, I almost always bump into one of my customers, like, without fail. Or if we're, we're apple picking or if we're going to, if we're in New York City, I literally bump into my customers almost everywhere. So one thing I am proud of is I would say 95% of them have a good feeling about the store and are actually excited to see me and they have good memories. So I like that aspect as far as a legacy. As far as continuing the whole, um, you know what, um, I, things are changing so fast now. E- even my own sons, I, I have two sons, they have no interest in this. You know, I, I, they work for me part-time a little bit in the summer. Um, they have no interest in comic books. I don't even know what's going to happen when my, you know, my sons are teenagers and in 10 years, I just don't know what, what to predict. It's funny. I mean, Steve went through slash is going through a similar thing with his own son who's in his twenties and, you know, has kind of, I think dabbled in the hobby a little bit, but has never really been into it. And, you know, it's something that Steve has talked about. You know, he closed the store. He, he still has most of the merchandise. He's storing it in, in warehouse units. And you know, he, he talks about the fact that, like, if he were to drop dead tomorrow, you know, it's not like his son would necessarily come in and, and take it over and actually, you know, really do something with sure. it the way Steve has been. So I know it's an interesting thing. It's it's so funny because, like, as a kid growing up, I mean, the idea, like, a comic shop was, like, so cool. And to, you know, to, like, if dad owned the store, like, that would have been amazing. But I suppose, you know, if it just, if it doesn't grab you in that way or maybe being around it so much, it doesn't, you know, uh, that magic doesn't strike you in the same way. I think it's I, I I think it's a combination of both factors. One is they they just have to have a natural affinity for it. Like like my kids when they were younger were really into Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and um, I can't remember all the other nonsense like SpongeBob and all that stuff. Power Rangers. 
or were they N- too? No, young? they they were they were too young for Power Rangers. They were right after Power Rangers. Okay. Um, but you know, and we, uh, but they just it didn't click with them. Like like they enjoyed the Marvel movies, and you know, but I and I used to read comic books to them. I remember reading plenty of trade paperbacks to them, and they were like, yeah, like eh, I'm good. <laughs> One other alternate realities thing. I want to ask if you have your own version of this. So um, we didn't take in a ton of back issues, certainly nothing the way you do. But every now and then Steve would buy a collection and then we'd play the game of what did Steve pay. And I mentioned this before in uh, one of the earlier recordings, but, you know, I've never been particularly knowledgeable on the back issue front, especially the vintage back issues. So you would think I wouldn't be good at the game but even though I didn't know the books super well, I know Steve pretty well. So I would usually <laughs> do pretty well in the game because I would have a sense of what, what he would pay, even if I didn't necessarily, you know, because then we would see what the books were put out for and things like that. So I, I could usually figure it out that way. Do you guys have anything similar oh, to yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, we have that exact thing, but to a pretty intense level. Like yeah? uh, every time, well, I shouldn't say every time, but probably 99% of the times um, when Corey and Pat buy a collection, whether Pat buys some Yu-Gi-Oh! video games, Pat does all our uh, video games, Funko Pops, Yu-Gi-Oh! Pokemon, uh, you know, Pat will buy it and then we'll, uh, and I'll look at it and I'll, and I'm usually, you know, Pat always laughs at this, I'm usually almost right on target. And Pat will also, before we, we, we get into the guessing, uh, the little quiz we call it, is he'll, he'll tell me who he bought it from and why. Because that does play a little factor. If it's a, Like I said, if it's a regular or if it's uh, a special situation, I know we're going to pay more. Or, you know, conversely, if it's someone that really gave us a hard time and was really making our lives miserable, I know we paid lower. Um, but um, And then Corey does the same thing. Corey will buy small collections all the time in the store, and I'll leaf through them, and he, and he goes, all right, how much? And I look at him, and I ask who he got it from, and uh, it's a lot of fun doing that. And I'm... Generally, I'm pretty much on target because because they've kind of you know absorbed like you're saying the zap method I call it, but that's a lot of fun. Yeah, actually, I thought of one other thing on on this note of of, of legacy and and maybe kind of compiling every you know your your thought process about all of this. I mean, the reason we're doing these episodes is the first time I had you on the show, you mentioned your your diary of a madman idea that you had where you started taking notes on on the deals that you've made over the yeah. years and. You know, when we did that first recording, I was like, oh, that would make a great podcast. And, you know, and here we are. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you know, you had that idea. Is that is that ever anything you would want to revisit, like writing a, a book or an online guide or something that yeah. others could, could purchase or, or just get for free? Um, it's something that I really wish I had um, I had done more of and, and actually stuck with and, and stayed committed to because... The problem I have now, and it sounds weird, you would think I'm old. I'm, old, I'm 47. I'm not old, and and I feel I feel great. But I noticed that my memory is not what it was. Like when I was in my 20s, I had a mind like a steel trap, and about everything I could remember, and I was really great names, faces, dates. Uh, you know what happens in a comic book. I, I I could look at the back cover of a comic usually and know what year it was, stuff like that. So I do regret not being more committed to, to keeping that that log. And I would do some kind of blog. In fact, um, it happens more and more. Some, I, I'll give you an example of, of just one of many examples. I went to buy a collection in Hillside, New Jersey last week. And I brought along my warehouse worker, Dana, who no one ever sees. Dana, they, 
we have a joke and it, it's a joke, Dana, but, uh, well, we, he, he'll never listen to this anyway, but, uh, we say Dana li, li, lives in the walls. He's, uh, no <laughs> never, one ever, never let him out of the warehouse. He, we don't let him out of the warehouse. He used to actually work in the back room here at the store. And then we, I needed him in to sustain the warehouse cause he's, he's does a great job in the warehouse and he doesn't really like interacting with human beings but he's super, uh, he has like a real OCD for, um, you know, organizing. And it, that's perfect. That's a perfect. perfect fit. And it's perfect for a comic book warehouse where you have to file stuff. So anyway, Dana, I, but I brought Dana with me to give me a hand loading up the collection. And I'm, you know, we're driving down. And he says, yeah, remember, remember the, the collection we bought at, in that town? And they were in the basement. And I'm like, no, I don't. I, where was that? And he said, yeah, remember we had, a, remember the guy had, everything in the um the the crawl space and we had to get in there i go no i don't remember any of these and, th- and then he rattled off like four or five people because i brought dane on a bunch of these loading up trips so i do regret i be because i i enjoy talking about them and I, I regret not keeping a log so going forward you're asking what i do with going forward yeah i'm actually i was going to do it this year because what i do i write a market report for the overstreet so i try to make notes during the year of notable sales and notable acquisitions and then i you know i get busy and i'm like ah this is tedious i'm all right i'm, I'm out but i'm i'm going to try and do it this year now how i would do it would probably be writing a blog because there's um this way well, i don't know if a blogger I, I don't know what would be the i i always thought a blog would be the best format but um uh, I don't know. I but I really would enjoy it because I, I enjoy talking about them, and and it is fun. Like just on that trip down to, we were went to Hillside, New Jersey. It was a half hour trip. Dane and I were talking about all these different deals I bought, and I'm like, holy crap! I forgot like all of those. He goes, yeah, remember the time he, it was in an old house, and they, they were. Uh, it was all those Silver Age books, but you didn't want them because they smelled. And I'm like, no, I don't remember any of this, <laughs> which is kind of a bummer. All right. Well, that's a perfect segue. So, you know, you had this <clears throat> experience where jogging your memory. I see you have uh, some notes in front of you here. And that yes. was one of the things that I wanted to talk about. Because, again, we you know talked about your history and we talked about some of the strategies, things that you do as you go about getting these collections. But I really want to give listeners a sense of the collections that you've bought that have come through the store because it's so remarkable. Okay. One thing I would say is um, because I've I do it every day, um, I'm probably not as aware of just how much I, I buy as when I'll sometimes talk to one of my fellow comic book dealers. Like a, I, I have some other buddies in the business, and, and we'll talk about, you know, different dealers and who's buying a lot. And they'll kind of remind me, and they'll say, Ben, you buy more than anyone. I'm like, nah, you know, I'm always out of stuff. I don't have a Hulk 181 right now. It's driving me crazy, and I, I got that great collection, and it's already sold, and now I'm like... I'm already getting anxious because I need another collection. But like it kind of hit home recently. I was talking to one of my comic dealer friends, and I was there's this guy that I sell the really bottom of the barrel stuff to. Um, you know, like the real. You know, remember we, we talked about it. It's like carving up a. Well, this guy buys like the bull uh, hooves and penis or, or or tail. Okay. Right. Like any collection that you buy, whether it's the top end stuff or bottom of the barrel, you have some channel to get rid of it. Every single piece. So anyway, I was saying, yeah, that guy, you know, he usually picks up like between 20 and 30 boxes, comes every couple of weeks. And then he's doing the math. And he's like, wow, that guy buys like a few hundred boxes a year from you, just that one guy. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. And then the other guys buy more than that. 
and then what we sell at shows. So he's like, wow, you buy like thousands of long boxes. And I'm like, oh yeah, I guess I do. And, but I'm not really like thinking about it. But what I've done over the years when, just to, just to give a little like background, when the comic book back issue market was not good in, in the 2000s, it, there was a little rumbling. It was, it was going to get better, but it was, the market was not good say the early 2000s and it was just starting to bubble up but there was tons of material out there to buy and no one was buying a lot so i get a i i get a call from a guy in new jersey he runs a warehouse some kind of fulfillment operation a huge warehouse he says he asked if i buy comic books i said sure i buy comic books and there's a time period i had no money business was bad back issue market bad um, but he says, all right, well, I have a, uh, over a million comic books. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, can you g- give me some information? I always get some information because I'm thinking to myself, that's a lot of comic books. I'll buy them, but there's no way that they're all. I, I'm thinking when he first called, I said, wow, if this is some like stash of old stuff, this is it. Your your ship came in. Well, it wasn't, of course. It was all um, late 90s to early 2000s, maybe 90 probably 95 to 2004 or so, because he, he called me, I think it was 2005. He called every store in New Jersey. No one wanted them, and 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 rightfully so. I mean, to buy over a million modern comic books, and, and this is when the market wasn't good. What, do you know what what caused that, that decline in the market? Was there anything specific you could pinpoint? It's hard to say, actually. This is before the, the, the movies, really. You know, this is before the Marvel movies ramped up. I've seen the back issue market in general go in cycles where there's a lot of interest and people kind of burn out on it. They move on to other things. Um, so I've seen this happen before. In fact, it's something I always remind people of, but it, it's probably cost me money because I'm too conservative. In the 90s, when times were really bad, 96, 97, on eBay, you could buy Amazing Spider-Man 129 for 25 bucks. I saw it with my own eyes, plenty of them with my own eyes. So now that Amazing Spidey 129 is even in low grades a few hundred, high grade is 3,000, I'm always quicker not to sit on things like we've talked about because that I, I have that seared into my memory. I, may, I remember that book, amazing. And I remember thinking to myself, I should just buy these. It's the first Punisher. It's a Bronze Age Spider-Man. And, and I had no money. I'd, I was barely holding on by my, by my fingernails. But so as far as why there was a downturn, I can't explain it. The, the the output from Marvel was pretty bad then because they they had come out with Civil War, and I'm you know I could be getting my years off a little bit. Well, Civil War, we're getting closer to mid mid two thousands, yeah. So the output, so this this probably maybe happened in two thousand six or seven. Then this call, I'm it's somewhere in the two thousands. It was definitely after Civil War, which was a massive hit, which I personally enjoyed. I thought Civil War was terrific. Uh, but then they came out with like Dark Rain and Secret Invasion and that stuff. And that was sure. when, when things started to be not exciting. Um, so the market was not great. So anyway, this man says, here, okay, come on down to the warehouse. So I, I have to go look. I didn't have the money for it. And you walk in a warehouse and you realize what over a million, it was about a million and a half. And there's just pallets and pallets of comic books. And there was also trade paperbacks. And then long boxes? Yeah. I, luckily, it was probably... 95% long boxes and some actual brown case. Some of them were still in the, in the uh, printer cases. So I'm like, wow, this is really cool, but I don't have money. And I know it's not that exciting. It's a lot of Witchblade and like just Hazari like that. But there was enough Marvel DC stuff and I still had ways to get rid of that. So I sit down with them and we work out that I'm going to, 
I don't have a place to put this stuff. So he's going to, a part of our deal was he, he had to get rid of it. He had no other buyers. No one wanted it. And I'm sorry, you might have said this oh. already. Was this his stuff or he acquired it? Like no. through, it was at the warehouse. And oh, he- okay. That, that's a good question. He was not a comic book person. He somehow, he never told me how it happened, but he somehow was storing these. Most of them had um, stickers from a company called Things from Another World, which is a mail order. It's owned by Dark Horse. It's a mail order uh, operation in California. So they somehow came, I don't know if it was their leftover stuff that someone bought as a remainder. I never got an answer and he was a little bit secretive. But I know most of them had, uh, it said TFAW, things from another world. It came from them somehow through some channel. So I start going through these. I sit, I sit down with him. The guy's kind of, he, he, he was a straight shooter, but he, he was a rough character. And he, he didn't really know anything about comic books. And he thought the whole thing was weird. And he, he had to get him out of there because he was selling his building. And so we had a time frame. He had four months to clear out his, his warehouse. So I worked out an arrangement with him where he would let me work in his warehouse, sorting them and palletize them. You know, we had to put them on pallets. And then I had the different buyers would, would organize their trucks to come pick up their stuff. And then I would keep, now obviously everything's hindsight's twenty twenty, of course, but I wish I'd kept more of them. But a few of the things I found in there, which I did keep, which worked out, he had a couple cases of Invincible One by Kirkman. A couple of cases. Cases. Uh, the brown printer case. I, I don't know if it was 200 then. It might have been 150, but that was that was neat. Now, now back then, they weren't worth much. They were they were like a $5 comic, but I was like, yeah, baby, this is cool. And then he had a case of uh, Next Men 21, First Hellboy. And then on top of that, um, which I wish I'd kept more of, he had just just thousands of image trade paperbacks. Now, most of those are pretty cruddy, like the Savage Dragon one is still horrendous, but some of them are actually out of print and pretty scarce, like the Crimson and Wildstorm. And so that was actually a lot of fun. So now I'll, uh, I'm going to bring Dana back, you know, Dana, who I, we discussed, who lives in the walls, not really, but uh, Dana and I worked in this guy's warehouse uh, sorting these and um, for a few months. And then... Um, so I got rid of probably about a million of the comics, but now I still had, or maybe I'm getting, I could be off by a hundred thousand here and there. It doesn't matter. Let's say I got rid of 800,000. There was still like a quarter million of comics left and it was the really bad ones. The ones I couldn't sell to the code approved guys, just bad independence, horrendous. And I had to get them out of there. Um, this is something I, I regret to this day. So I, I didn't want to start paying rent, like moving them, to a storage unit and starting to pay rent. I knew that that would just end in like a, a slow bleed. So I call up uh, a guy who's somewhat um, known for, he's a real cheap buyer, but he's known for buying anything in big bulk. So I call him, he offers me, I, I remember the number, it was so annoying and insulting. He offered me three quarters of a cent a book. Now, <laughs> what an annoying number. That annoyed me. But at that point, I, I had already, I was into the profits already. I got all the money back took about a couple hundred boxes for myself, stuff I wanted. But at that point, I still had, you know, a quarter million, probably about 300,000 books that I didn't know what to do with. In hindsight, I should have kept them because I know there was a few things in there that have gotten good. And and I didn't take a quarter of a, three quarters of a cent. That was an annoying number. I refused. But I did accept, I think I sold them for about a penny and a half. I think we worked out. And in hindsight, I shouldn't have done that. I should have stored them let them age a bit. Some of them would have gotten good and I would have gotten now, you know, about a nickel book. And you know, these are, these are good size numbers. So that was an interesting one. 
Um, it's it's so funny to me because you're talking about these staggering quantities of books, and you're very nonchalant about it. <laughs> but I would imagine uh, people listening to this, whether you're a fan or a retailer, must be that must be mind blowing. The idea of of just dealing in that in that number, it's amazing. Well, it is pretty amazing, and I will say I do enjoy this. Um, I'm I. I know I'm, I come off as nonchalant about it just because I buy so much stuff. And at times it, I, I am nonchalant about it because I buy so much. But it was really fun and exciting just pouring over pallets and pallets of comics. It started getting a little boring. Once I realized there wasn't going to be any massive score in there, it starts getting tedious. But it is fun. I mean, and, you know, printer cases of the... I mean, these things that fell off the truck, like on the way from the printer... I have a feeling they were their leftover inventory. Like like even how it happens here at Zap, like if we buy one of those 1 in 1,000 variants, if you look in my warehouse now, I have printer cases of some books because gotcha. we bought 1,000 or 2,000 copies. So um, I think that was the case. It was um, they just had extra inventory. They were buying big and they had leftovers. That that was an interesting one. I would say the um, a similar one to that, not as big, but one that kind of really took a little bit of uh, a leap of faith was, and again, I don't remember what year it was, but it was when business was bad. There was this man in Long Island. He owned three stores in Long Island, and he folded up, and he had them in storage, um, and he had all his, like, fixtures, like showcases and wire racks, you know, those Hey Kids comics wire racks, which are really cool, a lot of statues, toys. And he shopped it around really hard. I mean, he was trying hard to get this thing sold. And I think he was asking 50000 And it wasn't worth that to a dealer. And he couldn't find any dealer to buy it. He found one dealer that only wanted the statues. Then he found a dealer that would only buy the bulk comics, but really cheap. So I bought that. And that actually worked out really well for me. Because I bought it at a time when business was terrible. And I got a good deal on it. It wasn't super... It, it was not three quarters of a cent. It was, you know, I paid probably, you know, $25 a long box kind of thing and got those fixtures. Um, but that one actually worked out great. That was, I think, about 400 long boxes and plus like thousands of toys. Oh, yeah, there was a lot of toys, action figures, which I, that one I did a pretty, uh, I have to pat myself on the back. I really milked that one out well. Like, I didn't just flip it all. Like, because, and it was actually almost a blessing, um, uh, in disguise because the market was so bad I couldn't flip a lot of it so I kind of put it away and I let it age like there's a saying one of my friends says you let it age like a fine wine you know like if something's not good now you would just put it away and it'll age so that one I'm still selling stuff out of that collection that was probably um in the 2000s probably like 15 years ago maybe like 12 to 15 years ago and and I'm still selling merchandise out of that collection wow I mean I I would imagine that must be a at times, a difficult balance to strike between turning something over quickly uh, versus, you know, holding on to it. And if you hold on to it, I mean, then you're trying to predict, you know, how the how the value will change over time, trying to predict those trends. I mean, it must be it must be quite a balancing act. It is definitely a balancing act because I, I tend to uh, want to turn stuff over. My, I know. We've, I, we've talked about it. I know. Yeah. So I have to balance between turning it over and... And that's how you, you know, in my opinion, that's how most businesses should run. You keep turning them over and and you put the money into the next thing, keep turning, turning. But at the same time, that's not the way to go on some, and that's a balancing act, because on some products, 
If I try and turn them over now, I'm selling at the worst time where there's no one wants it. I'm, I'm going to get salvage value. And those, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get so little money for these anyway. I'm just going to put them away. And like I said, let them age a bit. Like, um, I bought, um, I'll tell you another pretty large amount, which was, uh, I think two years ago. Um, there was a man that was running a charity. It was actually a great idea. Uh, he ran a charity for hospice and he would organize and, and people would donate their comic collections. It was going to a good cause. And then he would have these big kind of warehouse sales and all, all the proceeds went to hospice, which was a great idea. And then he, he, he transitioned out of that and he had all the leftover stuff. And I think it was, um, I think it was roughly, it was about 330 long boxes and then a lot of trade paperbacks. He called, you know, every, everyone he could. Um, a lot of guys just wouldn't even bother going to look at them because they, they knew it was mostly modern. It was picked over. A couple guys gave him offers that were okay, but a little low. But I said, you know what, I'm going to go look at this because I, I knew they had been picked over, so I wasn't that interested because these had been gone through those sales and, you know, everyone had picked over all the good stuff. But I said, you know what, I'm going to go look. And it turned out that was a great thing to buy be, uh, because I went to look, because I realized there was uh, boxes and boxes of trade paperbacks that were still pretty viable, and the price was right. So I was willing to absorb, you know, 300, you know, 30, 340 long boxes of, you know, pretty much horrible comics, like horrible independence. But I got all these trade paperbacks for almost nothing, you know, almost zero cost. And the nice thing, even in that collection, there was those little oddball things like Alias, you know, the TV show, the Netflix show. Sure. There was a bunch of Alias in there, which weren't good, which had just maybe started to gain value. And like Preacher, which took off the TV show. There was, because there was a lot of vertigo in there. So um, that was a good little buy, you know, and that was all on pallets and we had to make room in the warehouse and wheel in all these pallets. But I really, as I've got, gotten older, you know, moving stuff around on pallets is just like... It's just great because, you know, you know, when I was younger, I'd, I'd just be like humping boxes and I, I'd always carry two long boxes at a time because I was big and I, I was young and now I don't want to do that anymore. Just a couple follow-up questions. So, again, I mean, when we're talking hundreds of long boxes and, you know, tens of thousands of dollars that you're paying for these things, I mean, how are you paying for these? I mean, you're bringing cash for the smaller ones, paying by check? Like, what, what forms of payment do people accept? Um, right now... Uh, most people, you know, it's 2018, people just don't use cash like they used to. So in the 90s, I would almost exclusively do cash. And it was kind of a pain because, you know, we, we had to keep some track of our accounting. And, uh, but a lot of people only wanted cash. That was actually uh, partly because they, um, they just didn't trust the check. And also partly because they wanted to hide the money from their wife or hide the money from a divorce lawyer. And, you know, there's right. all kinds of reasons. But, you know, we have to keep track of that for our accounting. We're running a real business. Um, now, it's almost exclusively uh, check. And sometimes when it's a large amount, they want a certified check. So I have to go to the bank. It's certified checks made out to their name, cashier's checks. I, I think I guess they're called cashier's checks. I did one last year in Detroit, and he wanted certified checks. And then a lot of people will... Um, more and more people will accept my check, though, and 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 that's how I prefer to pay because it keeps my accounting simple. Yeah, and 
and I'm pretty really well established. They know my checks are good. So I would say probably 80 to 90% of my deals I'm paying with a company check and people accept it. They, and you know, but then you have that 10 to 20% where they're kind of leery about checks or they, they specifically only want cash. And if they want cash, I, I make cash available and I just have to keep it, you know, keep track of it. But, but I have, I have paid for some pretty large deals in cash, like you know, um, hundred thousand dollars, fifty to hundred thousand dollars in cash. But I, I prefer not to. I mean, I can understand why. It's <laughs> somewhat nerve wracking walking around with that much money. Yeah, it's definitely something. Um, well, I told you in previous podcasts that I would bring my buddy. Yeah, yeah. I, I and I and he'd be armed. Um, if I had a strange feeling about something and it was only cash, I would bring him along. And uh, sometimes, um, if it was someone that I knew or just I, w- I was comfortable, I would just bring the cash. But overall, I'm very careful. And you know, I have to say, unless I'm forgetting something, I've never, I've never had a problem. Yeah, no, I never have. I've never had a problem where I brought cash and I was either held up or there was a problem where they said they didn't get the money. And and also, whenever I pay cash, I I have to get a receipt from them. They sign, and you know, I I have them. I, I print out a little thing for both of our records that, that they got the money, we're paid in full, these are mine. I also, um, and again, I've never been called on it. I don't know how much, for example, let's say someone stole the comics. Um, you know, it's rare that it happens and it's never happened with a large amount of money, but I always have them sign something that they are theirs to sell. There's no liens against them, against them and okay. something like that. Just to help, and again, will that really protect me? I don't know, but I do it. Well, it's smart to take that step. Another follow-up, you, you know, we were talking about the warehouse and Dana, who lives in the walls. When, <laughs> when, when did you get this warehouse? And is it is it a where units or is it an actual freestanding? Warehouse? Okay, um, I've always had warehouses, and I always wanted to buy my own building. To and now, and I looked very. I actually made a serious effort. I had a realtor working with a realtor, and he showed me things. This is about four years ago, and. Everything I looked at was either not in a good location, it was in horrible condition, and so I kind of had to abandon my dream of owning my own building, because something to know about North Jersey, um, it's very expensive, and the taxes, property taxes, are ridiculously high. So I decided to um, sacrifice actually owning the building, which I really wanted to do. Um, It's a very wise investment and it's a just it's very smart i, I know chuck uh Rizansky from mile high owns this building and it's been a it's really been the right move i just could never find anything that was convenient to me and in good condition so we rent uh we moved out from one little warehouse now we we, we have a large warehouse it's right down the street it couldn't be more convenient it's literally down the street um and it's beautiful, and and the landlord he maintains it beautifully. Any anything that goes wrong, they fix it that day, and it's clean. So it's a it's about six thousand square feet, very high ceilings, which was a requirement too. Because I I gotta we store stuff way. I think it's twenty eight foot ceilings. So we gotta store all the um you know I save everything like uh, for packing material and boxes, and sometimes I do these big buys of like clearance toys, and those go up high on the pallet racks. Um, so is it a, is it a unit though? And there are other units or it's, that's the entire thing. No, it's, it's one unit in, it's a group of, I think, six different warehouse. I don't know. I think, I think it's six or seven units. It's, it's right down the street. Cool. And, um, I really wish I'd bought something, uh, but 
it was not in the cards. And I couldn't sacrifice driving to like a, a cruddy neighborhood and also dealing with a lot of repair issues and problems. I decided the value was there. And, and I, the amount of time I save, you know, time is money. I really value my time very highly. And it's literally down the street. It, it's a mile away. So it's, you know, if, if a customer comes in here and we got to grab something, we say, we say, sit tight, and I run over and grab it. And um, I stopped here on the way home or on the way in. It's just great. Cool. All right, well, let's jump back then to our next, uh, <laughs> our next okay. collection. Well, you know, I bought, um, I've, you know, I, I wish I'd kept better records like that Diary of a Madman, so I had better dates and stuff. But starting about 2011 or 2012, I really got super aggressive about buying collections. The market was picking up. Sales in the store uh, kept getting better and no, better. No, we had talked about that previously. That was around the time of New 52 from exactly. DC, which you said was very good for you. That was like, I really view that, that DC New 52 as kind of the inflection point where things just rocketed. And so I not, not only was the market for back issues growing, but now I had some extra cash. I, I wasn't as afraid to start like really uh, putting cash to work and really, you know, because uh, sales were good at the store. During those leaner years, did you find that the money you had made and saved from previous back issue sales was able to, to kind of keep you going where you might have otherwise struggled? Yeah, it, during during the lean years, and lean lean's the right word, especially in like, well, I've had I, I've had three periods of time where I thought I might close up, where it was really bad, and I was you know had major anxiety, and I was like, wow, I think I'm just gonna be, I, and and this is uh, this is a weird, I, I don't know, I might have brought this up already. I remember one time I was like literally like, well, there was other stuff going on in my life, but business was really bad. I think it was right after nine eleven. It was right around 9-11, and I said, I think I'm just going to be an insurance claims adjuster. I don't even know why that came in my head. I knew someone who did that, and he would drive around all day, and it looked fairly easy. And I didn't want to go back to school. And I'm like, you know what? I can't, I can't take, take this anymore. There's just, I'm stressed out, massive stress. So during the lean years, um, I just had to scrimp and save, and I'd have to, well, I've, I've gone over this already, hold on to my checks for four weeks. I couldn't deposit my paychecks, and... You know, you know that, and luckily, you know, my my wife has been extremely understanding, and she's not materialistic at all, and she would just, you know, have have my back on that because I could see if you, you know, if you're married to the wrong person who's someone who's not understanding, it could be just another layer of stress. So during the lean years, I either um, just really scraped by, or I would usually find some other line of merchandise, whether it was Yu-Gi-Oh, Magic the Gathering. I think I went over in another podcast, I was shipping stuff overseas like crazy during the bad times in the 90s. And that's what saved me. I, I was sending spawn toys, like pallets of spawn toys over to uh, to Japan, like mm. all the time. Really weird. And that's what saved me. Um, but anyway, in like 2011, like I said, things, that was really the, the, the point where things really pivoted. So in 2012, 2013, I was feeling flush. And one thing I've never been afraid of, if I have a good feeling about something, like buying, I, I, I just knew it was good. It was safe to, I'm going to plow money into this. And then I would just start, that's when I started um, running ads in Overstreet. I started running some Google AdWords, which were kind of hit and miss, but I was doing that. And I just got very aggressive about it. Like I would get a phone call from like Pittsburgh, um, like one funny, like, you know, Pittsburgh is not close to here. I don't know if you're aware of yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> it, but it's like a seven hour drive. 
And I remember this lady called me. This is when I was just an animal. I was just buying like sometimes two or three collections a day. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to like throw fuel in the fire. She called me up like the day before and she had a Batman 227, classic Neil Adams cover. And I said, what else do you have? And she said, well, you know, I have six tubs of books. And I, the, the word tubs is death because that means they're stored in Rubbermaid tubs, the, those totes. And they're, they're never in good condition. Right. Bent, I'm sure. Yeah, bent. Curved. Curved. You got it. Throw, throw out every <laughs> n- n- negative word for paper you could think of. Um, but she had the Batman 227. And I believe her. And she had a few other good ones. So I just said, all right, you know what? I'm free tomorrow. I'll see you tomorrow. And she's like, she's like oh, where where are you? I said, I'm in New Jersey. He said, oh, you're going to come all the way up? I said, yeah, I'm doing it because I wanted that 227. And I figured there's enough, another couple thousand dollars worth of books. So I remember I got up like four in the morning. And one thing about me, which helps me with the traveling is I, I enjoy long drives generally. A lot of people hate long car rides. I'm, I kind of get in my zone. I listen to things on my smartphone, you know, like podcasts. I like stopping in weird towns, you know, and eating lunch in like a weird, just a random place and seeing like you know, a lot of people without teeth. Like I, I find it interesting just going, and I, I enjoy driving through Pennsylvania because it's pretty beautiful. So like that's just, a, and there's there's tons of stories like that. But I remember I drove to Pittsburgh. They were a nice couple. They were like empty nesters and they had these tubs of comics and the Batman 227 was there and I bought it. And I, on the same day, came all the way back. I got back at like I think nine at night. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, baby. Um, the one deal... When I really started to ramp things up, I think it was, it, it had it had to be right right after Hurricane Sandy, which was 2012. I know that because the person selling them, he lost his house in Hurricane Sandy, but he had kept his comics dry, thankfully. So that deal was one that really that w- that was one of the earlier um, deals where I started just th- throwing around larger amounts of money um, and just really felt confident about it. And that guy, and again. In hindsight, I wish I'd kept some of those because the, the values have jumped. But um, he had, I think, two or three Hulk ones. He had two amazing ones. He had Amazing Fantasy 15 um, and just a lot of good stuff. And uh, he had everything stored out in his house in Pennsylvania. That was a deal where he, um, I don't know how I paid him actually, but that was, that was, that was like a $40,000 deal. And um, I knew it was, it was absolutely... Uh, great stuff and that was where I really and like that that one went great like I turned it over and again in hindsight you know hindsight 2020 I wish I'd kept some of those because the Hulk ones just like tripled since then Ugh. but that was where I got a lot a lot of comments because I, I spent the 40 grand and I got it all back and plus a profit I think it was like a month and a half and I'm like yeah I'm doing this so that gave me confidence and then I was just throwing around it, it was no problem at all like someone that I have you know 30 40 50 grand and again, we didn't get those every day, of course, but most of them are small ones. But that was when I got the confidence because I say, hey, this is working and I don't see any end in sight on this market. The market's good for at least another year. I did not think it would last this long. Now, I was predicting in 2015 or 16, I said, well, I think it's going to peak here. I, it's so good. But I was wrong. It's still, it's better now than it's ever been for back issues. I, again, I know I keep saying it, but just hearing these numbers, it's, it's really incredible. In terms of the books themselves, as far as Silver Age books go, are there any key books that you have not had your hands on at some point yet? Because I know we've talked about Golden Age being a bit elusive, and I do want to come back to that. But as far as those key Silver Age books, are there any that you you haven't come across yet? No. 
anything Silver Age key from like, say, you know, Silver Age, you know, there's actually debate, you know, Silver Age is 1956 and up, you know, with some people, they say late 50s, whatever it is. It's a, I, I say it's, you know, it starts with, with the Silver Age is a showcase four. Sure, Barry Allen. Barry, you got it. So I would say I've had 99.9% of them. There could be, you know what though, there could be a few like oddball like secondary key characters, like in, in, in showcase, a showcase is a good example. Cause I think I've only owned one, sh- one or two showcases for my whole life. Those, that, that, that's a tough book. And there's certain showcase books that I almost never get. And certain early brave the bolt, for instance, brave and the bolt 25 suicide squad and some other brave and the bold. Those I literally might've had only one or two in my whole career. I was something I was always aware of, but I wish I'd really focus on more was buying up the DC silver age keys and putting them away. Because I always found in all my collection buying, there were certain books I would never see, like the showcase ones, Brave and the Bolds. Um, so there's other ones, Action 242, Brainiac. Um, there was certain DC keys that never came across in my hands. Whereas Amazing Spidey 1, even though it's you know, it's legendary comic, right? I've had tons of those. It's like almost like I I bought one I I bought one yesterday. I bought a graded 6L for a little little over 9,000. Um and it's it's cool to have it. I'll sell it for hopefully, you know, I'll make a I think it's worth about 11 something. We'll see. But it's not it in, in fact, I in, in sitting in the back room, it's it's not exciting to me. Whereas if I get a collection where there's some sh- showcase, some like early showcases, I'm going to be very excited. And that was something that I was going to ask you because again, some of these books that you know people would be you know blown away to see, like you've you've dealt with them so many times. What does get you excited? So like the showcases. Okay, the thing which gets me excited um, is early. I shouldn't say early, but um, any um, golden age in general, ex- except for the, the funny animal stuff and the Disney's, but any golden age I get excited about because I don't see it a lot. And, and they are really cool. And it's, you know, it's like a piece of history and you're seeing them. Like I have a, I picked up a golden age Superman recently and it's famous because it said it, it was during World War II and they, they had the anti-Japanese, you know, they had the stereotype Japanese. Right, yep. It's a famous cover. Um which is a beautiful cover. I think it's Superman pushing like um, a steam train, like a steam train engine. And But in the corner, it says something about, it says slap a Jap, which is a very, if, if you're a Golden Age collector, you know that cover. It says slap a Jap. And obviously it's racist and wrong and we you know recognize that. But um, so anyway, I get excited by Golden Age. In fact, last year, I'll tell you a great, a great collection I got last year. Very exciting. This guy calls up. Um, he had them from his childhood. You know, he was in his 60s. He had them from his childhood. He had comic books. He had only horror comics, which is music to my ears, 1953 to 55. And a lot of them had those very iconic, uh, the decapitation covers, um, really gory, creepy covers with skeletons and zombies. That was, and and it's all pre-code horror, you know, uh, pre-code meaning before comics code, authority had the seal on it and that was a great collection i was thrilled to get those first of all some of them i've never most of them i've never owned and some of them go for huge money because the guys that are really into golden age they know the rarity on some of these books it's they go for multiples of overstreet so uh, some of the books that go in overstreet say for 500 they go for 3,000, 5,000. so when we put, made a video of that i started getting calls from all over the country 
you know, major dealers and collectors. Oh, I need that dark mystery 19 for my collection. I'm like, no, you don't want it for your collection. Like, like one, one guy, one guy kind of got on my, I, I, I shouldn't let this bother me, but he's kind of a weasel. I know, I know that he didn't realize I knew who he was. He, he's a dealer and he, he, he deals in golden age. He's very knowledgeable. And he says, you know, I've been trying to fill in my run of dark mysteries. I just need these three issues. But, you know, the three issues he wants are the ones that go for like, you know, seven to 10 times guide and are the most sought after rarest issues. So I just wanted him just to be honest. Hey, listen, I really need those. How much you want? Just be straight with me. But instead, he's trying to tell me their first personal collection because that's what people do sometimes. It's, it's a weird negotiating tactic. They think, well, it, it's a weird, uh, it, it's a mentality among dealers. If they know what's going in your personal collection, I can't explain it. They'll be more uh, generous with you. They'll be a little kinder about the price, though. They'll give you a deal. But if they know you're buying it purely as a mercenary, they're like, well, I'm going to get the, the I'm, I'm going to maximize here because you're going to maximize. Why should I give you more profit? Right. It's all profit. And almost everyone who says it's for their, their, their personal collection is a liar, is lying. They're not a liar. They're lying at that time. It's always happened. Whenever a dealer tells me, you know, I'm going to hold on to this. I really just need this for my collection. They're always lying. So never believe them. That's good advice. Yes. So anyway, so the uh, pre, so what excites me? So the, um, that was exciting, any golden age. And then if I get a silver collection that is in particularly high grade, uh, with really bright colors, I get I get excited because you really notice it when you see one with those bright colors and it looks brand new. And then it kind of you know it's kind of it brings you back in time. You know it's a time warp. It's like wow, this is what they look like when some little kid in 1960. And um, uh, another side note, and uh, about Dana who lives in the walls, um, and he really doesn't live in walls. Okay, that's a joke. In case he ever listens to this, he probably won't. Dana is older than me. Dana actually has stories of buying Silver Age comics off the newsstand racks because he was born in. Uh, I won't say when he was born. Maybe he doesn't want me saying when he was born, right? But anyway, Dana, Dana bought comics in, in the Silver Age. So to me, that was the coolest thing. Like imagine buying like, I don't know, Fantastic Four 48, you know, yeah. on the stand. So with the Golden Age books, is it just that they're rare? Like that's why it's hard to get your hands on them? Is that the issue with them? Yeah, the, the, the issue with, with Golden Age, there's two things going on with Golden Age right now. One is they're legitimately much harder to get. The other is... Um, trying to think what date it started probably about four or five years ago I, it, the market demand went crazy on them now in the 2000s there was a lot of talk among dealers and collectors that the most of the uh, of the golden age is going to drop in value a lot aside from the iconic big key books everyone says that the buyers are going to are dying off and these new buyers have no connection to Golden Age, they're not going to want them. And that was the accepted wisdom. And I kind of agreed with it. This is in the 2000s. And boy, were we all wrong. I think what, what must have happened with it is a lot of the Silver Age dealers either finished their collections or they have they want to go after bigger prey. They, they want them, and, and they realize how rare some of these books are. There's certain books that are you just literally won't see in a whole lifetime. They're that rare. There's only maybe, say, 20 or 30 around. And most of the collectors who have them don't sell them. So there's this huge demand, limited supply, and, and away you go. If you have a hard time getting your hands on them with, with your network and resources, mm-hmm. then I, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure anyone else would be in that position as well. Yeah, they're definitely, 
Um, there are guys who really specialize in it and they know it better than I do, who really know the market. And the, those guys are always having a tough time acquiring stuff. Um, and in fact, there's certain dealers that do almost exclusively golden age. And, and they'll, if I see them, they always ask me, have you got anything? You got anything? Because they, they have a hard time finding it. So, um, you know, I, I buy tons and tons of comics, tons of bronze. I mean, just constantly bronze age and silver also I get easily, but I wish I could get golden age. It's, it's so sad. <laughs> uh, One thing that I was curious about when you show up to buy these collections, how often, if at all, do you run into the situation where your initial assessment after speaking with the seller and maybe taking like just a cursory look through the things do you find that like there's some treasure within like you really your initial assessment was was off and there's really something to be or or the other way around too i guess well it's always a lot of fun when you when you get a pleasant surprise right um it doesn't happen too often because i usually look at it pretty closely um but the best uh, times where I've gotten a surprise is when there was a pocket of comics in the collection that I didn't have knowledge about, and I just I was just made a guess on the fly, and I don't want to you know make the wrong guess, so I guess low on the fly. So the best time is one of my friends um, many years ago. He was he owned a comic shop. He says he always got the best deals when he didn't know what what he was looking at. Because the point is, when you know the value of it, you're going you're, you're to give away, unless you're really shrewd and really good at hiding your emotions, you're going you're gonna to give away what it's worth, you know, and you're, you're going to pay more what it's worth. So if I look at a silver and bronze age marble collection, I know exactly what it's worth, and I'm going to give them, you know, a competitive offer. But if I look at an oddball, let's say someone has a bunch of oddball golden age books, um, a lot of it I really don't have instant knowledge of in my head. And if I have to make a quick guess... I'm going to, you know, play it safe, right? So it happened recently. Last year, uh, there, were, there was multiple bidders on a collection in Massachusetts. I bidded against, I think, five or six other guys. And uh, I paid very aggressively, and, and the, the seller was very happy. And it was an okay deal. In fact, we made a video of it. It's, it's up somewhere where there was, like, multiple copies of, like, Flash 139 and, um, you know, first Zoom. And, but a lot of it was real ratty, like real brown and ratty. Um, but the little surprise I got, I, I paid him more than anyone else. I beat everyone else by a few thousand dollars. Um, so I knew he got a very fair price, very competitive offer. But the nice thing was uh, he had some other, some timely good girl books. Now, these are comics here like Patsy and Hetty. Now, I, I, I knew there was some demand for those, but I didn't know the value at all. So I, but I knew there was value there. So I had that kind of in the back of my mind. I'm going to pay him aggressively here, and hopefully I'll make it up there. But I really didn't know what they were worth. And it turned out some, some of those were really not thousands of dollars, but they, they added up to a very nice chunk of change because there's a great demand now for, for those good girl covers uh, from Timely. So I lucked out there. That helped because if not, it, it really would have been kind of a marginal deal. You know, I, may, I, I would have made a profit. I will say something interesting kind of related to that about making a profit or not is... Um, now, I could be wrong, but I can't remember a single time where I bought a back issue collection and it wasn't profitable. I don't think I've ever lost on a back issue collection. Now, I've lost on everything everything else at some time. At some point, I've gotten stung, whether it's toys or overbuying on, like, new comics or, 
you know, just look around the store. You'll see tons of stuff I lost money on. But which and and that's the other reason where I I I buy with confidence, where I'm just not afraid just to buy tons and just never say no to a collection. I I'll never just turn down a collection unless it's very small '90s collection or the real like maybe they smell like you know a dead mouse or something, and then I'm out. But <laughs> right. Well, and again, you know, you do have that network that you've cultivated, and I know from our from our first conversation that you do guard those connections with a fair amount of secrecy. Yeah. I mean, understandably so. Yeah, there's some little things where it's very... Right now, the market is really... It's so competitive. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest, most of the deals that I'm buying these days, I'm competing against most of them, not all, but I would say at least half. I'm bidding against at least two other bidders. So I really have, have to be sharp and I, I have to be on the ball. And one, you know, a few of those um, uh, sources that I have, well, not sources, but those outlets I have, a few of those outlets give me an edge. When I'm buying like a massive collection that has a lot of modern stuff, the bigger dealers just don't want to be bothered with that modern stuff. So they have to dump it to someone else. But I have a way to get a better price on it generally. So that gives me an edge. So let's say, here's a great example. Let's say there's a guy has been has a collection from 1960s to 2015. Now the bigger dealers like a Greg Reese or a Metropolis, they really only want the silver and a little bit of the bronze. So they so let's say there's there, there's a hundred thousand dollars worth of that stuff. The rest of it they don't even want. So they want to offer maybe sixty or seventy grand because they'll get a hundred. But then they have all this other stuff they want to factor to zero. So I can and it doesn't always happen, but but I can say well. I can now view that with a little more value. So I can compete with them, offer, say, 75 or 80 for the collection and win it, get rid of all that modern slop, and now I got those key bucks. Because for me, at least, I know there's some dealers that are able to do it. I have a hard time buying just individual key bucks at a decent margin. Almost everyone that has key book is actually wants, like, full retail plus. Like, for, for example, that Amazing Spidey 1, I think it's worth about 11 grand. And, you know, I paid o- over 9000 for it. So I'll make a profit on it. But for me to get that at a, a better margin, I would have had a bought. I, I would have had to find someone that's selling their whole amazing Spidey run. Right. Yeah, that was actually something that I was curious about when you are dealing with these, these key high-end books. You know, how often you're buying the single book versus... Uh, buying it as part of a collection. And my understanding is that the latter is far more common. Yeah. Most of the keys I get, I'd say probably, probably I don't know, 85, 90% of the keys I have, like Hulk 181s or Amazing Fantasy. Yeah, what are some of these, uh, just for our listeners, again, uh, most of them I suspect are comic fans and they probably have these in their head already. But in case maybe they're newer readers, they're not as familiar, or if they're not as into comics, like what are some other key books when we keep saying keys that okay. you're talking about? Like when we're saying keys, we're, we're talking about... Um, usually a first appearance or a number one of a major character. So you have the the hottest key of all right now is Hulk 181, first appearance of Wolverine. So that is probably the most in-demand comic book, hands down, across America. It's been that way for like five years. Now for me to buy it by the... Um, it's very hard for me to buy that by uh, buy it alone, just buy it from someone, because almost every time that a buyer has it alone... He knows exactly what it's worth. He usually overgraded it. So he wants a thousand for it. And I know I can only sell for a thousand and there's no room to make money. 
So I, uh, I'm able to pick up Hulk 181s generally when they're part of a much larger collection. So I'm bringing the value of they're, they're offloading their whole collection, and that's how I'm going to get my hands on Hulk 181 because I'll get rid of all the, the common stuff. So keys like that, like Amazing Spider-Man 1, um, Fantastic 4 1, Daredevil 1, uh, Showcase 4 with the Flash, really hard to get. Um, another one that's really tough to get in any, just, you know, there's a zillion I can name, but like, you know, Brave and Bold 28, it's the first Justice League of America. And that, you know, the movie didn't do that great, I guess, but still it really rocketed. But, you know, the bottom line is like, I just picked up two copies of Hulk 181 uh, in the past two weeks. And both of them, I had to buy an entire other collection, the, the entire collections. In, in both cases, that was how I acquired them. So I'm going to make okay money on the collection, but now I got the Hulk 181 at a decent profit margin. So I'm going to do the work of getting rid of a lot of those, you know, more common books. And if I tried to buy Hulk 181s by themselves, occasionally I'll get lucky. A customer will have it, and he says, all right, it's time to liquidate, and I'll give him 80% of the value. But usually you have to do it in a collection. Yeah, your ability to sell all of those pieces of the collection uh, really does give a competitive edge. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it, it does because um, if I didn't do that and I was just having to run around, like there's many, many dealers I know, and at every show you see them, they, they, they get in early and they're running around the room trying to find the guys that are have mispriced the key or that they can negotiate with and they could buy them by the piece. And those guys can make a living doing that. To me, I can't do it. I don't have the, I, I don't know if I don't have the eye for it, but it just seems like very difficult because now you're buying from another dealer. Most of these dealers overgrade their stuff and overprice. So now you got to find the guy. A lot of them buy from me because they know I'm usually right on target. I don't really haggle very much. You know, I yep. always talk about that. But um, buying keys, like the Hulk, Amazing Spidey 129, First Punisher, huge book. And, you know, Amazing Spidey 14, Green Goblin. I just got one of those. Really nice one at 8 Beautiful book. And that, but that was, again, I had to buy... The guy had a complete run of Amazing Spider-Man, and I bid against like five other dealers. I probably overpaid for that. I'll still make a profit, but I probably overpaid for that because the, the guy had a complete run of Amazing Spider-Man. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, well, the <laughs> really pun intended. <laughs> that's oh, but I'm bum. The really, the funny thing was in that same week, another guy randomly called me from Brooklyn, had Amazing Spidey. What do you have? Four and up. So in the same week, I got almost complete runs of Amazing Spideys which was great. And, you know, I sold a lot of them. I, I mean, I, again, I can't imagine what it would be like just to see them all, all lined up like that. I really like, I still, even though like we talked about that, I'm nonchalant about this. I still enjoy looking at a run of Amazing Spider-Man. They have beautiful covers. I mean, yeah, so they're you, so cool. Do you get excited as a fan to see that? Or is it more like I'm excited because I know what I can do with this as no. a, from a business perspective um, or both, I guess? Well, it's both. It's both. The the, the uh, number one thing is really just, I really hope that I didn't overpay and now I got to like check these for restoration and but I know, like, I'm going to make a lot of customers happy. Like, like for example, Amazing Spider-Man 3, First Doctor Octopus. That's on everyone's want list. That's, like, that and Fantastic Four, number four, in my, just in my experience, are some of the toughest books to get now. And everyone wants them. I don't know if they're scarcer or just... I, I can't explain why. So when I see an Amazing Spider-Man 3 in a collection, I get particularly excited because I have a list of people that want it. And now I can choose who gets it. And, you know, it's and it's always kind of... You know, you know, you you want to take take care of your loyal customers, but um, 
It is beautiful. When I'm seeing like a run of Amazing Spider-Mans with those Steve Didkill covers and then and then the John Romita covers, some of those are beautiful. I I still enjoy it as a fan. One last thing I want to ask you before we uh, conclude part three here is this approach of, you know, cultivating that network, knowing that you can sell each piece of a collection. I mean, was that a strategy that, you know, you learned from the people you observed? Was it something that you came up with on your own? Was it a conscious choice at the start? Or was it something that just sort of happened as you were going about your business? You, at a certain point, you realized, oh, I have all of these people. Or was that something that you were consciously, actively trying to nurture as you went along? Um, some of them, I consciously said, well, I have to f figure out a way to get rid of all these extras because it's something that every dealer and store faces. They have all these extra comics. And whether it's making sets, like we talked about the sets earlier, um, some of it is that, like, I really made a point of it. I said, well, this is going to help me a lot. If I have ways to get rid of big chunks of stuff, it's going to help my buying. It's, it's going to take the pressure off. And the other thing is some of it, just like anything, it just evolves. You meet this guy, you talk to someone, hey, I sell all my independence to this guy. This guy, um, you know, will buy a lot uh, of these. And then, so some of it you just you know, through just a normal evolution. But I, it was definitely, even years ago, like when I first opened up in 1993, I was pretty aware that I had to find ways to get rid of stuff, like in big chunks of stuff and, and not just sit on it. Cause I, I was pretty aware of how fast things would add up because I, I had already been dealing even when I was a teenager and I saw how, how you start getting stuck with inventory. Like we, I, I know we've, right. we've re rehashed this. So cool. Well, uh, obviously, it's an approach that has paid off very well for you. Uh, I want to thank you once again for taking the time to share your, your experiences and your insight with me and with our listeners. It's my pleasure. We still have one more episode to go. Cool. Uh, so to everyone who listened, thank you for tuning in. Be sure to come back in two weeks for the conclusion of our four-part Buying Books with Ben miniseries. Until then, just keep punching. Buying Books with Ben concludes in two weeks. However... You don't have to wait two weeks for more fresh flat squirrel content. Head on over to patreon.com slash mycomicshophistory right now and sign up for exclusive access to the My Comic Shop History After Show. Part three of my conversation with former Alternate Realities owner Steve Odo is available right now. Enjoy. Enjoy.